This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Let's go back in time to 1932 as Converse brings you historic footage of the legendary original Celtics with whom all great professional teams are compared. We have now taken over your radio. Richie Guerin is about to show you the most important step in getting past a man. It's the first one. An Oscar will inbound it. The men in green, the Milwaukee Bucks, that's Al Cinder against Bellamy. Welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason Mann, and with me as always is Rich Krejci. Rich, great to be back with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to this one. This is one that we, uh, a time period we've sort of ignored, and, and not intentionally, but sort of mistakenly ignored, but we're yeah. ready to get into it. Well, I, I, I think it's like yeah. the one period we just haven't gotten to yet, basically, other, right. other than like pre-1967, which I think <laughs> we'll eventually, I want to get to, but but as far as like, you know, more modern period, this is kind of the right. area that we haven't covered yet. So yeah, today we're talking about uh, Michael Ray Richardson, uh, Sugar Ray, as he was known, or just Sugar, as he was known, um, was a four-time All-Star, a possible all-time great guard for the uh, New York Knicks and the uh, New Jersey Nets, uh, who uh, sort of had a tragic rise and fall and became the first uh, NBA player to be banned from the league for drugs. He uh, had a severe cocaine addiction that really cost him a you know a, a tremendous career and. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a guest today, a uh, great guest, um, Robert Silverman, who uh, writes for uh, Knickerblogger, The Daily Beast, Vice, The Cauldron, Deadspin, The Classical, uh, many great places. And he is here to uh, join us to talk about Michael Ray. Uh, Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. And um, so maybe just, uh, you know, talk a little bit like... Where... Lacks a little nostalgic about Sugar Ray Richardson. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's one of the few people who actually did go to Madison Square Garden to watch him play. I'm I'm happy to bust out my old man bona fides and talk about what it was like before you crazy kids with the twittering and the Instagramming <laughs> got a hold of basketball. I'm the um, definitely I'm the definite young in here because Jason he might you might remember some of it. I know nothing. Uh, he was out of the league by was, the time I yeah, was. Yeah, I, I, th- that would he would have left right before I really had any knowledge of, of pro basketball. I'd have been seven or eight at that time. So so yes, Robert, you are old so yes go ahead (laughs) thank you for insulting our guest uh, rich uh, you're you're on a streak of that actually i'm very good at that yeah it's gonna be my thing now yeah i've got an oxygen tank ready just in case i get too excited about all this Um, casino yeah (laughs) right so here's the deal sugar ray was great i mean i'm trying i was trying to think earlier today of a player that i could compare him to 
And and honestly, the the closest I could come was a, a more talented Rajon Rondo. Okay. Um, more offensively talented, rather. He wasn't really a defender that Rajon was. So he, he tended to hunt for steals, which, you know, Rajon does also. But his game was just so unorthodox and, and so electric and so much fun when he was, you know, clean and sober. Um, less so when he was, you know, having problems with, with, with substance abuse. But uh, I remember going to just, you know, it, it's this thing when you're a kid and – you don't have to really be told who the guy is who you like because, you know, when you're a kid and you're eight and you're nine, you attach yourself to the best because you're not filled with all these adult notions of, you know, frailty and, and, and flawed senses of, of reality. And you just want to be like, I want that golden god there to be me. And for those for those early, late 70s, early 80s Knicks before Bernard King showed up, that was Sugar Ray. Um, he was a mini Magic Johnson also, in a way, is another way to look at him. He wasn't as big or as talented or nearly as good as Magic, but he did a lot of the same stuff in, this, in, a, in, in a sort of smaller package, no pun intended. Um, and, and it was just, you know, the, those teams, they actually had a reasonably decent Nick team for about a year and a half there with Sugar Ray and Ray Williams, the dynamic duo backcourt. And, and Michael Ray was my, my absolute favorite player up until he got traded, and then it was Bernard King. Yeah. So the drug issues really didn't, like, weren't really known about until after he left the Knicks, right? It, well, you know, there's a story that came out a couple of years ago in the Post, which is one of my favorite all-time Post stories about that the the 81-82 team, the sh- the ship be sinking. Uh, for those who don't know, Michael Ray Richardson famously was asked by a reporter, you know, when the team was struggling, which, you know, or nixing, if you will, <laughs> that like, well, so what's going on, Sugar Ray? And he said, the ship be sinking. And it was really the best way to describe what was going on with the team at that time. But little did they know that not only was the ship sinking, they were kind of sinking on purpose um, (laughs) because there were about like three or three Knicks, according to FBI files, who were heavy users of cocaine and they were shaving points in order to deal with um, dealers and and degenerate gamblers. And one of whom was laying like $10,000 bets on the Knicks every game. So so not only were like there were three seriously coked up Knicks, there were three seriously coked up Knicks shaving points. Wow. I, I the, the, you know, I did some research, but I hadn't actually heard that. That's pretty crazy um, to well, think about. You know, it's 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 FEI documents in one book by um, Brian Tui, and it's called Larceny Games, Sports Gambling, Game Fixing and the FBI. <sighs> and it and there's like, you know, actual FEI documents. So it's not just one guy saying, yeah, I used to shave points or, or, or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but it was somewhat known. It was one of those things, you know, it was a time when you could have open secrets and keep them out of the public eye a little bit more. And it wasn't until he started getting bopped, you know, and, and suspended by players and, and, and Stern actually, you know, kicked him out and he got busted for for, for testing that, that anyone knew. And, you know, it, it's interesting because that was like, I think, one of the first conversations where I had to have my dad explain to me what cocaine was. Even growing up in New York City, this was not something I knew at age 12. <laughs> and I was like, wait, why are they getting rid of Michael Ray? And even though, you know, he was playing in New Jersey, I still was like a Michael Ray Richardson fan. And I was like, wait, why does he have to go? And it was one of those sort of, it was a very, you know, Manhattan moment where my father did not really explain to me why Michael Ray Richardson had 
to be kicked out of the NBA, but gave me a long and lengthy, uh, let's call it a monologue, possibly, uh, about how the entire uh, drug war was a colossal failure and there was probably some slighting of Nancy <laughs> Reagan and that prohibition has never worked in the history of humanity and Michael Richardson is a casualty of a failed policy that has thrown millions away and turned an entire nation of uh, businessmen into criminals and et cetera, et cetera, and on and on. I remember this very, very clearly, <laughs> along with my mom, like, routinely sticking her head in to say, why are you, he just wants to know why the player won't play. <laughs> right, yeah. like, he has to learn sometime. <laughs> and now, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Uh, well, one thing when we're doing the research of Michael Ray, and, and especially with me, when I'm looking at this, one question that kind of comes to my mind is, and it's sort of a hypothetical, how do you think his career would have differed had he not went to New York? Had he not been in New York? Do you think he still would have possibly succumbed? I mean, obviously New York wasn't the only place where cocaine was was <laughs> flowing, you know, in the early 80s or whatever, but do you feel like there would have been less of a like a, a drive there or less of a, a, a path there? Less of a scene, went? maybe. Let's, right, yeah. Whereas he is drafted yeah. by the Milwaukee Bucks, for example, not to slight the good people in Milwaukee or claim that they're completely drug-free, but if he'd been... <laughs> If he'd been in a place where people were like just mainlining melted cheese and brats instead, um, <laughs> I have been to Milwaukee. And I can confirm that is all they do. So. Oh my god, I, I it was I was I was there for uh, like a week and 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 I kept trying to say, do you have a vegetable that's not a potato? No, <laughs> it really it was a bit of a problem. Um, but and. Those are good brats. Don't get me wrong. But, yeah, you yeah. know why O.J. Mayo? When O.J. Mayo said, "Hey, I live in Wisconsin now," I, I get it. Why he was like, yeah. "I gained thirty pounds." Yeah, I know. Like, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a robust diet. Let's say that. <laughs> um, the uh, maybe no, I honestly no. I think I think I mean you know I have some personal experience with this, and, and an addict is going to be an addict no matter where you put them. They're going to find you know. I, I wish I could say otherwise. Like, well, maybe if this is this, an, an addict will find a way. Uh, and it, it really doesn't matter where they are, or they'll find something else to get hooked on. Again, maybe melted cheese. Um, but, you know, a, an addictive personality doesn't change by your location. It's not just that it was New York, it was readily available. The fall might not have come as quickly, and he might have been able to hang on a little bit more if it was slightly less available. But And I wish I could say otherwise. But, you know, the guy has turned his career around, and, and he has turned his life around. And I'm, I'm all for addicts' recovery stories. Absolutely. How would you kind of describe like his style of play it it was it was it was sudden i think is the best word that i can come up with um like i said defensively he wasn't what you would call a lockdown defender but you just never knew when he was going to dart into the passing lane or get himself caught completely out of position by reaching for a steal he his jumper was incredibly streaky but when it was on you could not stop him his best he was and he was a great 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 finisher in transition and you know really especially in a time when when hand checking rules were still around it before the new illegal defense rules came into play he was a guy who could get he could beat oh, pretty much anyone off the dribble that you know again which is why i keep pointing to rondo is like a guy who could do that he wasn't the floor, he wasn't the passer rondo was or even really the ball handler was but in terms of straight you know handle and speed and the ability to beat his man and get to the hoop, he was might be, you know, along with, say, Stefan Marbury, the best the Knicks have ever had. Which, again, it's not a lofty standard to, to hold Knicks guards to. But, you know, since, <laughs> <laughs> since, 
Uh, but in terms of the ability to beat a guy one-on-one, he was a one-on-one player. He was, he was in many ways, you know, he, he, it's easy to talk around the whole playground game, but he had a playground game. He just, he, there was no fear. And sometimes he would crash miserably. But when he was on, it was just beautiful. Sudden. I'm going to stick with sudden as the verb. Of- yeah. And fairly or unfairly, he's always sort of linked to Bernard King, obviously, because of being traded for him. In your mind, of somebody who, who's kind of grew up watching both of them, what are the kind of the comparisons of the two? You know, we, we sort of think of them as, as well, a lot of times when we think of one, we think of the other. When we, you know, how, how similar were their games? How similar were their mentalities? And how, how much did they affect their teams when they either went or, you know, came or left or, or what have you? You know, it's it's interesting thing because they were both kind of – Bernard is very different. Bernard had – also was a great transition player, but – those Hubie Brown Knicks were played at a snail's pace. So you rarely got to see him in transition. Even when they would play, you know, go 10 deep and trap, that team didn't run. And it was, you know, even for a very sort of nascent 12-year-old me who only kind of understood basketball, I was like, why aren't they running more? Because Bernard would just storm down the court. And he had this really, this, I think there's a, there's an NBA highlight package where Hubie's, you know, quelling as only Hubie can, like he's watching like a grandchild, like walk for the first time or just got like a really good <laughs> corned beef sandwich at the deli um, about hey, him having just this quick dunk. And it was like that. You would see him streaking down the court and he wasn't like, you know, an electric leaper or anything. But suddenly it was like, wham, a two handed dunk that would end it on the break. And that turnaround jump shot was unstoppable. You could, it, it, you know, he shot I think five seventy or there around, as a, like a six six low post guy, shooting mainly turnaround and like step back jumpers from the from the post. And the Knicks' office was incredibly. The Knicks have had a dump the ball into their chief scorer and stand around and watch offense, ev- pretty much since the Frazier Reed people left. And sometimes you know it's worked sort of with Ewing and it worked sort of with King, just because King was. Again, unstoppable. He there was in the '84 playoffs. He took a team with where his second best player was probably Bill Cartwright, and he was surrounded by like Rory Sparrow, Trent Tucker, Ernie Grunfeld, and Ken the Animal Bannister, and took the '84 Celtics to seven games pretty much on his own. Uh, and he was I loved him. I loved Bernard. It was just automatic. But they, they were very, very different players. You never knew what you were going to get from Michael Ray. And I don't think his teammates were really very confident in him as well. Um, and then uh, – Is that you know, the question? I kind of rambled there. Yeah, that was – no, that like, works. That, that was great. I should have gone into the second person like Hubie and been like, okay, you're Bernard. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, kind of talking a little bit about sort of like – there's a lot written at the time and, and, and since then about, you know, the effects that cocaine had on the NBA, both in terms of just how it affected the players in the league that had issues, how it affected the perception of the league. Like, do you think it's fair to consider him sort of the poster boy of that? I mean, it does seem like his were way severe, more severe. His problems were way more severe than almost anyone else's. But you, then you talk about something like the, um, you know, the issue with, you know, the three players being so addicted that they had to, you know, shave points or that that does sound like more severe than, you know, I kind of I would think off, off the top of my head, you know. I think John Lucas might be the person also. Michael Ray might be the best known because he was the first one to get kicked out forever. Right. You know, Tarpley's there also. Um, it was just, you know, it's a drug that has, you know, if you've ever partaken, you don't function the next day if you've been on a binge. Um, it's not the kind of thing you can bounce back from 
just as a dude walking around, let alone trying to compete at high-level professional sports. Um, he might be, again, just because he was the first. He's, you know, the, the Jackie Robinson of getting kicked out of the NBA <laughs> for cocaine. Um, it's, you know, I, I don't think we'll ever know the degree to which it was prevalent in that era and how much damage it had. You know, Bernard King also was dogged by rumors of extensive cocaine use, both in you know Jersey and in Golden State before he got traded, and even in freaking Utah, you know, before he, got, he ended up with the Knicks. Try to find try to find hard drugs in Utah. You know, if you've got a problem and you can score in Utah, you've got a problem. Um, but it's uh, you know. My 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 suspicion is is yeah that when people think of that Michael raised the name they come up with first you know the '86 Rockets were that championship team was decimated by drug use yeah that would have been a team that might have bumped off the Lakers a couple times in the late '80s if it weren't for Lucas going bye bye and Mitchell Wiggins and you know and and all those guys with that team mm-hmm. that to me is the greater impact I mean. Michael Ray, you know, bouncing around from Jersey and, and getting booted is one thing. But if you want to talk about changing the landscape of how we understand the league, I think the Rockets are actually the big shining test case there. Yeah, that's a good point. I know Phoenix had a lot of issues in the late 80s, yeah. too, if I recall. Phoenix did. And, yeah. and then, of course, there's Keith Hernandez and the 86 Mets, all of whom, you know, and, and, and Dwight Gooden and, and all sure. those guys who are having a, a really good time. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and Strawberry and all those guys. You know, it's it's. It's an incredibly potent addictive drug. <laughs> I think that's and, and and the absolute worst one aside from, I don't know, like, you know, high tar heroin that you could take if you actually want to be an athlete for a living. Sure, sure. I mean, that's the problem. I mean, the thing is, the league managed to, you know, we, we don't know the extent of what it was like in the 80s. And, and we don't really know the extent of what marijuana use is now. The problem is marijuana is a lot less harmful to actual performance and in general and not physically addictive. So they just sort of switched, you know, players have, you know, dealt with it, you know, players used to smoke in the fifties and who knows how much that held the game down smoke, you know, freaking right. cigarette. Yeah. The, yeah, I, obviously that would affect just the athleticism of the people. And I was, you know, the athleticism <laughs> in the fifties isn't quite what it is now. So, <laughs> right. but you know, I think the fact that like, you know, Tommy Heinsohn and Bob Cousy were like, you know, copping a butt, <laughs> between quarters. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, now we just had Vladi Divac doing that, which all praise to Vladi Divac for keeping up that spirit alive. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we had a couple of, uh, unless, I don't know, Rich, I was going to go to the Twitter questions unless you had No, that's, else. yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's perfect. Let's um, there was one, and I'll, I'll switch this slightly um, from um, Stingy at I, though. Um, he oh, has, I know that. Dude. Yeah. I like that dude. <laughs> he asked, what was his best line in one game? And I, I'm going to sort of extend this to uh, like, what is a, like a notable game? Not necessarily the line, but what's just like a, a standout performance or two that you can think of, you know, when, when you kind of look back on his career. You get the joke there? What was his best line? Yes, yes. <laughs> it's a funny. He made a drug funny. It's subtle. Um, what was his best? I mean, the game that I actually remember more than anything is when he, he not the game, but the, the entire series he had in when he and the Nets knocked off the defending champion Sixers in, in 83, 84. It's actually when he was gone. Yeah. And he was off. Again, you know, that Sixer team was pretty much the same team that won the title. I mean, Moses was, you know, a little bit off from where his peak was, and, and Dr. J was continuing to go down, and Tony 
he was you know was injured a lot but again he took a team with mike jaminski and buck williams was the only other you know guy he had going with him right and there was you know bernard's brother and 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 i think foots walker was still on that team i mean it was a ragtag collection and you know he absolutely destroyed that game. I can't remember the actual like scoring one, but I think he had a, at least a, a, at least one or two double doubles in that series. Yeah, he he performed very well, absolutely. Um, and then is uh, Paul J. Casey um, asks, can he get Converse to bring back those sweet leather uh, Chuck Taylor style sneakers he wore? Which yeah, any memory of the uh, Chuck Taylor uh, sneakers that. Uh, uh, was, was there anything that uh, added to his appeal for you? I, I, I think Paul Casey is is not to dispute the great Paul J. Casey, who was my college roommate. But Paul J. Casey, I don't think he wore. Uh, did he wear the Chucks? Did he wear he, the he Larry did. Bird? He, he might have. He might have worn them later, like with the Nets, though. I'm not sure he actually wore them um, earlier. But but I, I found a uh, I found an oral history of Chuck Taylors, and he is quoted as be, as actually did. He had a signature uh, leather Chuck Taylors for 1995 wow. pair. I think you can get them. I mean, look, in the future, Will Smith manages to buy a pair in iRobot. So I, I don't know why <laughs> Paul J. Casey, if that is his real name, can't manage to locate one. Yeah. I, and, and no, I don't. I do, though, have a pair, if you'd like. I do have a pair of game-worn uh, Bill Cartwright short shorts. Oh, purchased on eBay. I will take those. Yeah. I will have those if, no, if those are available. Those. So. No, you can't <laughs> have those. No. I'll trade you Charles Oakley. I'll, I have Charles Oakley game-worn ones. I'll trade you for that. Think about All it. Right, I'm going to think about that. All right. <laughs> I've got the short shorts, though. I mean, I've got the nut hugger. I don't actually. Well, they're not getting my photographs. I have photographs of them. I actually wore them. Uh, my my. I just because I just I was playing. There was a there's a I was playing in a pickup game before the Sloan conference at MIT, and I just want to let everyone know that 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 I'm not good at basketball, and I'm not good at basketball. Um, so I, I wore the Bill Cartwright game-worn. So they're also, you know, Robert Silverman game-worn short shorts. That's adds value, I'm sure. Which is way more important than, I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, you know, but, but did people... Did Cartwright ever co-author a book? No, that I know of. Maybe. He probably <laughs> did. I don't know. But, well, you know. Yeah. But, uh, I, I call <laughs> but I do have Bill Car- and Bill Cartwright game-worn from from the 19 either somewhere between 1979 and and 83 season when the knicks did have those wacky maroon and blue uniforms with a name underneath the number i have those are the ones that those are from nice i own that that's my that's my best jersey possession i also have a Danilo gallinari armani james uniform those are my two <laughs> your that's my best that's me splurging on the eBay late at night when I'm like, I wonder if they have a Donald Gallinari or money jeans uniform. That's awesome. <laughs> and then yeah. by now, like, cool and regretting it two seconds later. But yes, I'm sorry. We, we got completely lost. <laughs> Next quest. Uh, that's okay. I, th- that's, I believe uh, that as I said, the one thing I wanted to mention in that, uh, that spin thing is that uh, Michael Ray said that he had to wear orthotics when he wore Chuck Taylors. So, which shows you yeah. the value of those as a basketball shoe. Yes. You, yeah, the, the, they're, they're the, quote, the quote is gone. He says, uh, that was a good-looking shoe. wasn't nothing to play in compared to Air Jordans. I had to wear orthotics uh, when I wore Chuck Taylors. Yeah. So as did only Michael Ray could say. Did he have a sponsor? Did he have like a, a sponsor? Did, he, did he get uh, like in a, the, in the, There's a documentary that uh, – I, I forgot who produced it. There's that Michael Ray documentary. And they said that at like one time he had like two shoe contracts at the same time. Oh, that's right. And like <laughs> yes. he just – I don't know. Like he didn't tell everybody that he had two. And like they just said that he had two of like yeah, everything. And he, like, had two, he had two shoe contracts. He's like, no, I think I – 
Yeah, I think I saw that documentary that, or at least one of the the documentaries. And there's a lot of like grainy, uh, you know, sort of uh, very '70s filter, like like Scorsese B-roll shots of like New York City nightlife passing by while a narrator like very seriously intones about Michael Ray Richardson like staying out till seven in the morning and have to be like having to be dragged out of like some horrible drug den in order to like make it to an afternoon game or something yeah. like like the worst horror stories like as, as bad as you can imagine yeah there this one was narrated by chris Wartrock. so um but but That's it, but it has but yes. that is the one i saw yes, yes that is definitely the one that i saw yeah and it, yeah uh, whatever happened to michael ray and it's it is very good it's on youtube for anyone who wants to check it out and i recommend checking it out because it's uh it's a good, good. um good. yeah it's good this is podcast first and then check it out so you know, yeah, right. I, 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 then someone, someone needs to do a complete oral history of what Michael Richardson was like at the University of Montana. <laughs> there he's one, he's one of the great Montana ballplayers. Yeah, he, hmm? he, he took, uh, he did take like eighteen hours every other weekend to go to uh, Denver. Yeah, I want to know about those. His mom and his girlfriend. So, uh huh. To yeah. Denver, quote unquote. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of air quotes when you're talking about Michael Ray. Yeah, but you know, look, there, uh, I, I. I would have what I would have loved to have seen, and, and I've I've actually searched YouTube for this is clips of Michael Ray playing in Italy after he got banned when he supposedly was you know when there's he was some, a dominant yeah, player. We'll, we'll have to send you. There's actually a few that we found that we unearthed, and, and oh, he's he okay. I mean, he's fine. Yeah, he's he's kind of like an old man at the YMCA uh, against. I mean, that, he sort of plays like that a little bit, where he plays like a 38 year old dude that's just sort of like hanging out at the YMCA, and he's still really good, and you can tell that he has raw skill. He just ha- he's very grounded though. But no, it's pretty interesting to see. It. They're definitely fun. Yeah. You know who's going to be a great, like, 58-year-old YMCA ball player? Possibly the best one, and it's not Paul Pierce. It's it's Carmelo Anthony. Carmelo, Carmelo <laughs> oh, yeah, he's going to bust you until he's sickly, yeah. Yeah, he's going to do that. He's, it's His game won't really change that much from what it is right now, especially with him trying to, like, gamely struggle forth on a 4-19 and team with a, with a knee that clearly needs surgery and a back that is slowly degenerating. It's going to be a smooth transition into YMCA ball player for, for Melo. <laughs> As you can see, the years of Knicks fandom has made me a touch on the pessimism. <laughs> well, it hasn't been the best day for Knicks fans, so you know. I, I, I I'm, I'm personally myself. Uh, I'm, I, I just want to report that I have, I have never gotten into a fist fight with any of the Knicks, uh, <laughs> nor yelled at Mello or Tim Hardaway. Just, yeah. just to clarify. Well, that's good. And any reports that you've read to the contrary, <laughs> to the contrary about me and Mello beefing. They're not true. Okay. Don't believe the lamestream media about that. <laughs> That's fair. We'll, we'll talk about it once you get off the air, or once once we discuss. Yeah, I mean, here, Richard. I don't. I mean, I, I do complain about I've Richard a lot rebounding of a lot. I trust, so, so yeah, yeah. As, <laughs> why don't you grab a damn rebound, Jason? Come on. <laughs> I mean, That's my favorite part. Of really that story. has slid in the That's... in the past few shows. But... <laughs> That's my my favorite part of that story is the fact that it's Mello and Tim Hardaway like yelling at each other about defense and rebounding. Yes. It's 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 off the scale on the irony meter. It's like <laughs> that's like so if funny. anyone would know about how not to play defense or rebound, yeah. it's yeah. those. T- <laughs> that was actually an okay rebounder, but that was just I'm just sitting there like wow. I mean, and again, it's unnamed sources. I personally blame Jason Smith, who I blame for everything. <laughs> I think I think either Jason Smith is the source, or it's Tim Hardaway Senior. <laughs> who's like had to listen to like hours and hours of phone calls from Tim Jr. I'm basing this on no to clarify. I'm basing this on no actual knowledge, information or sauces, but I'm, I'm, this is purely my humor based speculation about who it might be. Well, that's it's probably, that's Jason. the best kind. Oh, good. <laughs> 
All right, Robert. Well, uh, thank you so much for uh, for joining us to discuss uh, Michael Ray. And uh, Rich and I will be back in just a little while to uh, talk more about his career. going to run through some of the highlights of Michael Ray Richardson's career. Uh, he grew up in Denver, was one of six brothers and sisters, was uh, considered the uh, man of the house. There's, some of this is from the uh, documentary, of course, that we uh, talked about earlier um, and uh, definitely kind of grew up even, I, I think, uh, you know, caught one of his sisters smoking marijuana and made it clear to her that um, that was not going to be accepted, which, of course, makes his later uh, drug addiction uh, Mm -hmm. Ironic. Um, went to the University of Montana, um, and uh, he actually he was re recruited by Judd Heathcote, who was the University of Man Montana coach, would later become the uh, Michigan State coach and Coach Magic Johnson as well in college. Uh, and apparently, there were, he was one of three Mike or Michael Richardsons <laughs> that were um, at the University of Montana for around the same time. Only two of them stuck. Um, uh, Michael John and Michael Ray, um, and uh, of course Michael Ray became the 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 major star of that group, um, and uh, he, he had a uh, you know he, he was very close to his mom, very close to his family. He drove eighteen hours every other weekend to see him and his girlfriend, who he married when they were in college. They had a child, I, I think, during his senior year, so he started family mm -hmm. early. Um, and then after he was drafted, the uh, first thing he did was uh, buy his mom a, uh, a his mom a house. So a very family oriented guy, uh, kind of considered, you know, like sort of soft spoken and sweet and, um, you know, a maybe a little bit naive, maybe a little bit easily yeah. led astray. I guess, you know, you kind of get that. But you know, he was big for a point guard, at the, especially at the time he was six, five, 190 pounds, you know, a, um, you know, big for that position this is uh he was drafted in 78 so you know a year before or yeah a year before magic was drafted so um you know, magic had yet to show up and revolutionize the nba and make us think okay yeah big guys can actually play point guard but right um, no, and, you, and you get that idea where, when you mention the naive part about Michael. When you when you sort of watch videos and read interviews and stuff with him, you sort of get that idea. And it, it's it's in the nicest way. It wasn't like I don't want to say dumb, but sort of you know what I mean. Where he was a little bit. I'm, I'm trying to figure out the right word. You sort of get this in the interviews too, and the, and the coach talks about it too. Uh, Judd. Um, Did he go? Uh, yeah, in Montana talks about when he was leaving and he said, hey, Michael, you know, I'm, I'm leaving. And, and Michael goes, well, you, you, you can't like you need to stay like like you you and I like you're a father to me. And he, he's just talking about like he's like, well, I, yeah, I don't know what to tell you, man. Like that. I mean, I just yell at you to like <laughs> play defense. It's not what fathers yeah. do or whatever. And then he says, well, you know, you have to realize I don't have a father or whatever is, is Michael right. Ray's kind of quote. And, and that always kind of stuck with Judd to an extent. And he sort of said the same thing too, that Judd, that, that he was such like an open-minded sort of, he would be let it. I mean, if anybody said, Hey, come follow me, he would, he was very trusting maybe in that way. It's not as much of an independent guy. I, I don't know exactly the right way to put it, but I think people kind of get the idea of what we're sort of talking about. With this yeah. I, I mean, I just think kind of like a guy who could like, like, a, you know, good enough guy who, but who could easily fall in with the wrong crowd or, right. or get uh, yeah. into trouble had just sort of like a, uh, they talk about like him always like 
you know, needing to go out and have energy and kind of being restless and, you know, and, you know, a guy who has the attributes that can get into trouble, which he, um, you know, often did, especially as his career developed. But um, he started off um, the uh, 78-79 season. The uh, Willis Reed was actually the coach of the Knicks for the first 14 games that season. They had, they had brought in Willis to uh, replace Red Holzman. Uh, that didn't go all that well. They decided Reed was kind of uh, sort of feuded with management. Um, and um, and there's a, sort of an SI article from the time when Red Holzman comes back, says that, you know, he was told by the Knicks that the game had passed him by and that he didn't relate relate air quotes to the younger players. He was made a consultant, but was never consulted. But then he, he uh, took the job again. Um, also brought back Earl Monroe who was 34, basically the last player from that, from those, you know, great Knicks teams mm-hmm. of the early seventies. They, they were basically long gone. Um, they were around, you know, they, they kind of, they brought in Bob McAdoo, who was sort of like in a weird, like middle transition period in his career between like being a star and then, you know, being a great role player for the Lakers, you know, throughout the eighties. Um, Marvin Webster, who was a big man who had been, uh, I think a number one or number three pick a few years before. And, uh, but was kind of a disappointment in his career. Uh, Ray Williams, who he kind of formed a, you know, pretty exciting, uh, backcourt with, and, you know, a, a handful of other guys, Spencer Haywood, uh, uh, who was a sort of another, like, um, disappointing seventies guy who was a high draft pick who didn't really pan out like people thought mm-hmm. he would that, that kind of thing. Um, and, um, so he didn't actually play that much. He only played uh, 16.9 minutes per game. I guess he sort of had some conflicts with um, Holzman after um, after Reed left. He thought, you know, he was excited to play for Reed, you know, who as a player he thought would understand him. But Holzman didn't didn't seem to quite at least work out, at least not for the first year. Right. And, and you get uh, you get quotes in various stories and, and, and the documentary as well, where he sort of talks with reporters. And, and, and <laughs> there's one particular story where he's talking about he's like, man, you know, that Holzman, he doesn't know anything. You know, he doesn't know what skills I have or whatever. And the reporters like said that Holzman was like standing like six feet away from him. And then when Michael left, he was just like, uh, <laughs> like, like just shaking his head or whatever. So, yeah, it was always sort of a conflict there of, of this guy doesn't recognize how good I am or how good I can be. So another note, too, is did you see any clips of the Willis Reed when he was a coach? That was a snazzy dressed head coach. He was, yeah. All- he's got like the mini fro going. He's wearing these like nice, like they're like sunglasses. Like he's wearing sunglasses while he's coaching. It's it's they're not real glasses. They're they were tinted, and it's just the greatest thing ever. It's so the awesome. the '70s coaches outfit. Like that might not be a podcast <laughs> all in itself. You know the uh, the '70s coaches outfit. Yeah, we can talk about Dick Mata's suits for like 40 minutes yeah. easily. So. And Larry Brown's early wardrobe. You know. Oh that's- yes. Oh yeah. And he had like he had ruffles on his stuff too. Yeah. That, yeah. That's that's our next one. I don't care what else we were doing. Oh Christmas. <laughs> Whatever, that's done. We're doing the 70s uh, coaches attire. All right, we'll, we'll, podcast. we'll, we'll mark so that, that one down. <laughs> uh, so, um, in a 79 80 season, uh, they do improve to a 39 and 43. Uh, they add Bill Cartwright, who was, uh, I, I he might have been the number one overall pick. I, f- I forget offhand. Is Bill Cartwright, the number one overall pick. I don't, yeah, I don't, I know he was high. Was he? Um, oh, no, that would, that would have magic. So, you know, he, he couldn't have been number one overall. Um, he was, he was, he was third, third overall. pick overall. Okay. Yeah. yeah I knew, yeah, I knew okay. he was high. So, um, and then, you know, you have Dave Greenwood, you have magic Johnson, Dave Greenwood, and then Bill Cartwright. Yeah. So, uh, so, so they, obviously Dave Greenwood, the best of the three. <laughs> so. Obviously. So they had, you know, they had Richardson still, um, 
and uh, Williams and uh, Toby Knight. Uh, they had a couple of other rookies as well. Um, Monroe was that was his last season. He barely played. He played like a few, a couple hundred minutes, I think. So that that was basically the end. But uh, that was Richardson. He was a he was an All Star that year for the first time. Became apparently the first player in league history to lead the league in both steals and assists uh, this the uh, same season. Um, and I, I know you have a stat here of, uh, yeah, it was kind of interesting. I tried to look at, um, at that year that he had, which is an incredible year. When you look at it, the, the, the numbers of assists and, and steals he had in that year. So I wanted to look at anybody who's had any years anywhere, even close to that, where you have that combination of steals and assists. And turns out there's only one other person that's anywhere close to that. And it's John Stockton. Uh, from 80, uh, what was the year? Sorry, I lost it here. Uh, 88, 89 was the only guy to have n- almost close to the same steals and assists in the same year. And of course, as Richardson, st- so. steals only go back to 74. So that doesn't sure, count anybody so. before then. But still, that, that obviously in the last uh, you know 40 years, that is a uh, that is an impressive stat. So and, you know, he became he was known sort of as a uh, a flashy highlight player. He talked a lot of trash, including um basically going into the locker room and uh, telling um, Isaiah Thomas that, you know, he's going to whip his ass tonight. Um, and, uh, and then doing so uh, Isaiah would always talk about a, of um, Michael Ray as being like the, uh, you know, the hardest guy for him to uh, deal with. Um, and um, he, uh, he had a great in- in ability to anticipate steals, you know, as, as is shown in his, um, you know, in fact, they led the league in steals so many, so many times, and had such great numbers. Uh, of course, you know, as um, as Robert mentioned, probably also led maybe, you know, as we know, guys who go after steals a lot can also often be caught out of position on defense. Sure. But certainly that that you know the, the the steals did help change the game and and help the team and just you know offensively just um, just had a lot of you know, ability to get to the rim in traffic, you know, spin moves, changing direction, reverse layups. You know, I kind of thought like looking at him, he kind of reminded me a little bit of maybe like a Dwayne Wade. Sure. Yeah. That's, that's when you look at the stats too, a little bit where you have that sort of combination of, of not a, not a great outside shooter at all. Like, like pretty, I mean, from three, pretty bad from, from three, which Dwayne Wade obviously is, is a guy who's not that great from three, but a great driver, great at assists, great at steals, you know, that, yeah, that's, that's sort of a guy. I mean, obviously the, the height's a little bit different there, at least, you know, relative to to the league, but yeah, when I was watching the clips or whatever, it sort of did remind me a little bit of Dwayne Wade. I think that's a good, good comparison too. And, and one other funny note about that season that we're talking about the 70, um, the 79-80 season when he when he led in assistant steals, he also led the league in turnovers too. So that man, that man was a, a part of most of like every possession. He was either stealing it, assisting it, or turning it over. Yeah. So that's what was his, that's good enough. What was his usage rate? Was yeah. Let's see what his usage. Uh, I was only twenty two point nine. I mean, that's, okay. that's good, but not or, or you know, that's yeah, it's not more insane, than average. Yeah, yeah but like, yeah, he never Iverson-esque, right but... exactly. That's not Iverson Kobe level. That's for sure. But that, that's that's quite interesting. Yeah, the lead in, in those three. I, I I don't have it in front of me, but I I'd, I'd be interested to see. Well, I mean, he's the only one who's led the only two, so I doubt. You know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, of course, that seems unlikely, <laughs> right? Um. So um. There's a uh, sort of a a preview of the um, of the next season from from SI. They would always do the they would always do divisional previews in their NBA preview one. So um, they uh, talk about the Knicks have suddenly become the league's number one show team. Um, and uh, Richardson is quoted as, as "We're going to give the Garden crowd a show," and then talks about like. Uh, Coach Red Holes or Red Red Holesman's, excuse me, gray suit evokes memories of what the Knicks once were, the model of conservative elegance in pro basketball. And then it talks about like 
points per game, you know, measurement, how they mm-hmm. they play fast now and give up a lot of points. Um, and I think this this sort of like uh, a lament about, um, you know, oh, the Knicks aren't what they used to be in the 70s, which, of course, has been basically been the lament the franchise has had since, you know, pretty <laughs> much since. But um, but you just seeing that and seeing sort of the perception of the Knicks at the time, I think, is um, interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. And they um, had their had their peak year of the um, <coughs> of the Michael Ray run in uh, eighty eighty one. At least in the regular season, they finished uh, fifty and thirty two, um, and they were um, you know they were strong. They uh, you know in addition to uh, Cartwright and um, and Richardson, they also had Campy Russell, uh, Sly Williams, and Mike Glenn. Webster, who had dealt with a lot of injury issues, played 82 games. Um, so they were, you know, a pretty young roster. Um, they still had Ray Williams. And uh, and so they, you know, they were uh, not like a whole lot of names that we would know, not necessarily, but they, you know, uh, guys who were definitely produced for them that season. They also had in a, uh, a small role, Mike Woodson, future, uh, yes, yeah. future uh, Nick uh, coaching great. And, <laughs> legend, and also, legend, yes. yeah, also the uh, coach of the uh, 2004-2005 Atlanta Hawks. Oh, there it is. Okay, there it is. Bravo. Uh, and um, but in the uh, postseason, um, which the, I have for the first time saw the term uh, mini series referred to as the, the three game series that they would play mm-hmm. in the first round during this era is referred to as a mini series, which, which I very much like. And they, they were swept by the bulls. Oh, uh, two, but I, you know, I, I always feel like, like three games is not enough of a basketball series. Like it's yeah, it's not good. I'll, I'll speak from a uh, personal experience when I do uh, NBA 2k uh, <laughs> franchises or whatever, sure. I will usually drop the first round to something ridiculous thing, like three games or whatever, just because then you actually get like this weird, parody where like you know and th- and that could be a, a situation where we see a lot of these teams in the 70s and early 80s or whatever where they're out in like like we'll talk you know a little bit or, or this team in particular where it's like well they probably shouldn't have lost this bulls team but you go down to oh that's it i mean you're done you're over it's that's right. the series or whatever exactly. yeah it's it's it, it leads itself to a lot of parody but in in the overall sense where yeah it'd probably be I, i'm sure there'd be a segment of fans that would be really cool if today's nba did that or whatever where oh we you you know there was some parody or you didn't know but most like true basketball fans want to see the best two teams play at the end of the year and don't care that you know hey you know the eighth seed doesn't have a chance of winning a playoff series or whatever to us it's it's just kind of whatever but yeah that, that this would lead that you know there would be a lot of, of parody if if we were doing three game series anymore but exactly. uh, it's probably for the best for yeah but, I, uh, I i agreed I, I like seeing the best i mean i certainly like I like a good upset, but like those upsets to be earned. It doesn't feel like a three game upset, right. you know, like you still have them like the Warriors and the Mavericks recently or sure. things like that. Yeah. Where, where, or, you know, the, the, the Memphis, Gri- I mean, the Memphis Grizzlies, what was so rewarding about them a few years ago and them making it to the Western Conference finals was that they were, they weren't fluke little like, Oh crap. We had like one or two good games. It was like, no, we're, we're, we're showing you that we can, you know, we beat the thunder. We beat, you know, that that's, there's a lot of value in that. That's, that's fun. That's more fun than a fluky, you know, we just kind of got two lucky wins against the team, but this Bulls team is pretty good. You know why? Because they had Dave Greenwood, sir. That's why they. Oh, were. absolutely. And Artis Gilmore and Reggie Theus. Yeah, but yeah, yeah they, but, they, were, <laughs> they were. But the number two overall pick, Dave Greenwood, was probably. <laughs> yeah, they, they were a forty-five win team, so um, you know, it's not like they were bad or anything. Um, you know, so it was a five-four upset. Yeah, eighty-one was the year where there was the. Um, that was where in the West that was just crazy. Where there were the. Um, 
you know, the uh, the Kings um, upset the uh, Trailblazers and the Rockets <laughs> upset the Lakers. And then they both the Rockets and Kings who were both I, I, they were either under 500. Or they were like 42 and 40. They were like right around that saying they, they actually ended up playing in the conference finals. And of course, the Rockets played the Celtics in the finals. So that was just there were upsets all over that year. Which is cool to an extent, but also, yeah, it it, it leads to a lot of weird like yeah. Western Conference it, finals it, it, where you're just, just like, really? Yeah, like they it doesn't feel earned. Like it doesn't feel no, earned no. when you you know in just a three games a five game series. Uh, you know, okay, okay, but I like I like them all being seven game series because, and like I said, we've there have been enough eight beating one that's happened much more regularly recently where like those it doesn't feel like it doesn't happen enough where it's like impossible to right. do, you know, obviously it's, it's happened. So it's not impossible, but, um, so a, uh, another, um, kind of a preview of the next season is talking about, um, <laughs> this is another one of those like basketball used to be better back in the day is, uh, what's right is the raw material on hand. What's wrong is a dearth of fundamentals. Without improvement in that more bounce passes, goddammit. Yeah, exactly. Without improvement in that department, seven foot one built cartwright, Campy Russell, Michael Ray Richardson, etc., will again be no more than an exciting team that falls out of the playoffs early. Because they didn't that, that Jerry Sloan team that they had fundamentals. So Dave Greenwood <laughs> right. fundamentally sound. Michael Richardson, right. not so much. Do show right. it. Artist Gilmore. I mean, if you need a if you need a just nice back to the basket hook shot or whatever, that's that's Artist Gilmore. There you go. So. And that's why they won. And then they lost. Uh, they got swept by the Celtics, unfortunately. Yeah, but well, you, know, you know, we're gonna. We're, that's we're just gonna eliminate. Eighty-one that Celtics were pretty. They out fundamental. There you probably, go. Yeah. I'm assuming. Yeah. I don't know, but I'm guessing. Yeah. There was. There, I'm sure there's a lot of good bounce passes there. Well, just a lot of good chess <laughs> passes. You know. Right. Chess. I mean, I just all they ask is chess. You just, just want to pass to the chest. You know, just back and forth <laughs> chess passing. That's that's my idea of great four basketball. There's four corners and chess passes. That's that's how NBA is meant. <laughs> there to be you played, go. So. Yes. A. Uh, so. Uh, <laughs> um. This this is kind of around the time um, where Michael Ray is getting deeper into the party scene. There's a GQ um, looking at uh, – it's sort of an excerpt from a – it's an excerpt from uh, a a book um, called Bigger Than the Game uh, by uh, Michael Weinreb who talked about – sort of about the the idea of 80s creating the modern athlete, looking at Bo Jackson, Brian Bosworth – Jim McMahon and, and other players, and, and there's a a, a small portion uh, excerpt from Michael Ray, uh, basically just like describing that like um, it was not uncommon to see his Mer- her, his Mercedes 450 SL with the sugar with the word sugar engraved in gold on the stick shift parked outside of Studio 54 or near the infamous swingers club known as. Plato's retreat, uh, given his lifestyle, cocaine was a natural fit. By 1983, he had burned through six agents, 16 cars, a wife, and a, and his promising career, <laughs> basically. All of those things, you know, he just totally um, – just kind of showing like, hey, this is the, the amount of success. And there's an, another mm-hmm. Grantland feature um, that very d- describes things uh, very similarly – um, also talks about, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, looking at his highlights, describing him as someone who put magic, like it was like Mike magic Johnson, but on fast forward. Um, and also, um, you know, describing him as, um, like serially high strong. He never lifted weights as a player and he was so shaken by losing that his teammates would have to calm him down afterward. 
So just kind of getting a little bit more into his personality. And you guys kind of have some, a little bit of like where he sort of stacked among the uh, point guards that were, um, you know, uh, uh, similar to his era. Oh yes, yeah. So you look at a little bit of um, uh, Michael Ray compared with with point guards or guards of his era, and and we sort of we meant to talk a little bit with, with Robert in, in the top of the show about this, but we ran out of time. But it's a very interesting era for point guards and in, in, in general because you're seeing a weird change in the guard. Obviously, you're, Magic Johnson's coming into the league at the early part of this point. Isaiah Thomas is coming to the league. There's still there, there's but there's also still some older guys. Like we'll, we'll go over in a little bit, but you still have some of the older you know folks like you know you get like a tiny Archibald is still sort of hanging around a little bit. So it's a very weird dichotomy of this this sort of point guard thing. Unlike not, a, I don't think we've seen anything similar to that where there's been such an easy, it's such a weird transition of, of point guards because that's always a fun little capsule of time is to look at point guards through history. Like right now we're going through another renaissance. You know, the early two thousands was like a you know a dearth of, of point guards. But uh, I want to look a little bit at, at him in the in comparison with those early uh, '80s point guards and, and sort of how he stacks up. Um, and it was pretty interesting when you when you look at uh, assist numbers. And I just did what I basically did is three thousand assists. I made as kind of the benchmark here uh, from nineteen seventy to eighty. Uh, to uh, 1984-85, uh, only six other guys had 300 or 3,000 assists. Rather, uh, Michael Ray was obviously one of them. That's why I'm bringing him up here. Uh, the others, which aren't too interesting, if you if you think uh, Magic Johnson, obviously uh, Maurice Cheeks, Isaiah Thomas, Johnny Moore, and Norm Nixon. So Michael Ray is in some pretty decent company there. I mean, obviously he's he's leaps and bounds behind a, a Magic Johnson or even to an extent in Isaiah Thomas, but. I mean, comparable with those other guys and, and, and a pretty decent era of four point guards to an extent. Um, a few other things I looked at, uh, he had uh, Michael Ray, actually, he had more win shares than Isaiah and Johnny Moore at this time. So obviously this is only through the mid 80s. Isaiah would obviously stack up a bunch of the late 80s and, and, you know, obviously become one of the better you know point guards of all time. So a little bit irrelevant, but but fun nonetheless. Um, he, he obviously had far less than Magic Johnson at the time, also far less than Maurice Cheeks and Norm Nixon. Uh, but he had slightly more win shares than other kind of early 80s ones like Brad Davis, uh, Tiny Archibald, and then John Lucas, who we mentioned with uh, our interview with Robert. But yeah, weird era for point guards where you're sort of seeing this change to the guard. It, it's not particularly good, though. Yeah, it's it's there's some good guys in there. There's some OK guys, but not nearly what we'd see, you know, what we're seeing today or what we saw, you know, in the 70s or, or, or maybe even in the mid 80s, too, if you'd like. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, because we're we've yet Stockton hasn't emerged yet. Right. Um, you know, Gary Payton would be a few years later. Uh, you know, Mark Price, um, uh, Kevin Johnson, you know, those guys, um, you know, who along with you know, kind of the tail end of magic in Isaiah's career, you know, kind of, you know, <laughs> We led to a number of, you know, pretty great years for uh, for point guards. And obviously Magic and Isaiah are at elite level. And honestly, Maurice Cheeks is a guy, I think, who um, isn't necessarily the name. But if you look at how he performed, he was definitely like I, he's better than I think his reputation. Yeah, he comes in a, in a lot of these when we do when I do a lot of play indexing stuff for, for all these shows. He's a guy whose name always comes up no matter what, especially when you add any elements of assists or steals or something. He's always up there near the top. Yeah. It, it's it's pretty remarkable. And was an efficient scorer and a uh, you know and part of some, some really good teams and, and a four time yeah. all star, too. So, um, and, yeah, I mean, but, uh, you know, just but kind of giving a um, a sense of kind of the company that Richardson was keeping. And, and, and you know, bear in mind, this is, of course, um, you know, he's performing well for a lot of this time. But there's a couple of years where he just completely falls off just because, you know, of the uh, of the drug habit that sure. he uh, is dealing with. So those probably, you know, if he hadn't have had that issue, he probably would have, you know, been, uh, you know, at a higher level. Um, maybe not, you know 
not to Magic's level, but, you know, I think right there underneath. So, yeah, certainly. Um, so the 81-82 season, they follow up the 50-win year with a 33-49 and campaign. Um, they get older. They add Maurice Lucas, who, of course, was um, you know one of the uh, key cogs in the Blazers dynasty, but kind of bounced around a little bit after that. Uh, Randy Smith, who had uh, – before AC Green had the uh, consecutive games record, but was 33 at this point. Uh, Paul Westfall, who was 31, who only actually played 18 games that year. So basically, they're a, um, you know, they, they get older and they get worse. Um, the Adding the experience does not help them. They lost Ray Williams and Mike Glenn, who were kind of two of um, Michael Ray's best friends on the team, may have helped kind of keep him in line a little bit. Uh, or maybe not. I'm not really sure. I, I got that sort of that impression that that was sort of an impact on him. But, you know, who knows? Obviously, I guess they may, maybe they um, helped him get in trouble. Um, yeah, I, I never could quite get that because every story I read was a little bit different where they said, you know, these are the guys that kept him grounded. But then also that these were the guys he partied with or whatever. But sure. maybe it was good to party with other, you know, you know whereas they also described that once those guys were gone, he was just a lost soul who was just like, then he was just going out and going crazy yeah. or whatever. So, so who knows? I mean, what you can party I mean, with your friend, but your friend can kind of keep you from getting into worse. Stuff. Yeah. That's sort of the vibe I yeah. got is that it was like, oh, okay, let's go home or, you know, let's chill out. Whereas he didn't have that barrier anymore. And then it was just like, whatever, like who knows though? Yeah. It's, it's tough to say Re- regardless. Like we talked with Robert, it, it's one way or another. A lot of the stuff was probably going to happen. So, yeah. And um, actually, uh, funnily enough, actually, Williams got traded to New Jersey, uh, where, you know, Michael Ray would end up in a a couple of years. They didn't I don't think they actually ended up playing together. I think Williams was traded or was off the team again by the time he ended up getting there. Yeah, he wasn't he wasn't there again. So they were never reunited. But um, and. you know, they and Richardson. This was the ship be sinking um, in time <laughs> that uh, toward the end of the season. There's an SI article from eighty two from March of eighty two where they're twenty nine and thirty six, and he said, um, and this before then they talked about how people felt that Williams and Richardson had to one of them had to go because they've had some erratic play and because of the. Um, the loss to Chicago. Um, so they ended up trading um, Williams and Richardson says, you know, people never mentioned all the games we won in the closing seconds. We clowned around outside, but when we were on the court, we dominated other gar- guards, points, rebounds, everything. And we were getting better and better Management said they wanted youth, but then they traded Ray and brought in people twice his age. So uh, that's why we're 29 and 36 today. Ask anyone <laughs> in here and they'll tell you the same thing. And if they don't, it's because they're too scared to open their mouths. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, there you go so you wanted a quote you got your quotes yeah and <laughs> like, uh, you know as far as performance wise i mean he was he was an all-star this is his third straight year as an all-star numbers wise you know it really everything you know his percentages are right uh, you know along the line of you know what he does he still leads the league in steals his assists are down but i think he was kind of he kind of went from like point guard to shooting guard, you know, kind of back and forth. And, yeah. you know, he was sharing the ball with other guys who, you know, other guys who are playing point guard um, as well. So, you know, I, I guess it's, um, you know, that, that, in this season, he took 200 more shots than he did that year, uh, two years ago when he led the league in assists. Yeah. So you can sort so of see, more of a, and that's about what his drop off in assists. I mean, the assists were a little bit more, but yeah, he basically turned all of his assists into shots. Yeah. So, so he was, he had a similar role. His usage was actually under 20, which is sort of kind of an odd for a guy who you kind of think of as like being, you know, pretty ball dominant. Yeah, that is very low for him. Yeah, that, that is odd. I wonder what, what, 
Yeah, I'll have to investigate. Why that would be? Yeah, I, you know, I don't. I mean, I I understand usage, but it, it's still sometimes like you know those those math. You're the math guy. I'm you know. Yeah. That, well. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> Me being described as the math guy is not good. Well, I am the guy who who is interested slightly in statistics of sports. Uh, yeah. Well, my my girlfriend, she was in a stats class and and. Uh, for her grad school or whatever, so she would like every she'd come home and be like, "Okay, here, like here's what my homework is." And I'm like, "I don't like, I know like baseball stats and stuff. Like, I don't know what like these things actually are. I just know how to read them and and talk about them. I can't actually like come up with them for you." So, well, but luck, yeah, so I am the math guy. Luckily, am, so. we're not a stats podcast. So, right, exactly. You know, we, so, we, thank we, we like I, I like stats. I, you got the R squared. You got R squared on this very network. Listen to that instead. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I mean, listen to us too. We're nice, but well, no, we're good too. Yes, but we're we're good in a different way. so um so yeah and then after the the offseason he ends up being uh traded um well he has like i guess the timeline is that the knicks sign bernard king to an offer sheet and um and then at the time there were still, you know, compensatory rules for free agents. So eventually they, they work out a deal or, or the commissioner rules on a deal that Richardson ends up being, you know, the, uh, the compensation player for Bernard King to the golden state. Either way, he ends up at golden state. He, he does have a training camp under new coach Hubie Brown. That was the last season for red Holzman. And, uh, they do not get along well, and he's shipped out, so he starts a new era in Golden State. And uh, we're going to take a little break and talk about that and a lot more uh, after this. All right, and we're back here talking to Michael Ray Richardson, and now we're talking about his uh – era so to say quotes in golden state uh one thing before we get into that though i wanted to uh obviously in our interview with robert we mentioned that he's sort of always linked to bernard king due to the trade the, the whatever the compensation trade whatever it was but essentially bernard king comes into the next michael ray richardson leaves so they're always sort of linked of, of of post you know michael ray richardson pre you know bernard king whatever so i wanted to look at the comparison of the two and see who got the better of the deal quote unquote uh so i looked at basically 1982 to 1986 um obviously during some of these years there's a little bit I mean obviously you have Michael Ray who, who has his issues and is, is sort of in and out of the league but also uh, Bernard King misses an entire year uh, with injury during this so it's a little bit interesting to see sort of how they they, they both sort of related but uh, uh, Michael Richardson during this period uh, he averaged 16.8 points per uh, 36 uh, 7.4 assists per 36 uh, 5.2 rebounds per 36 and then 11 uh, value over replacement player which is a nice little nugget that basketball reference recently added which I'm very happy about uh, and then a 16.5 win share so I want to look at how they compared to Bernard and and interestingly enough, um, obviously Bernard King, uh, 27.6 points per 36. That was his deal. I mean, obviously he was going to be a great scorer, but assists, uh, 2.9, so way lower than Michael Ray. Uh, 5.4 uh, rebounds per game, slightly above Michael Ray, but very, I mean, like 0.2 above. But very interestingly enough, a uh, value replacement player, uh, Bernard King, 9.3 compared to Michael Ray Richardson's 11. But what's what's even more interesting about that is how much it varies from win shares, which is kind of uh, one that we like to use at this site and how basketball reference obviously does a great job with it. Interesting to see the sort of the difference here is that Michael Richardson, uh, 16.5 win shares, uh, Bernard Robinson, 26.7 during this time. So almost 10 wins better, but on value over replacement player, you have Michael Richardson as at a, a little over two or a little under two above 
Bernard King. So what does it all mean? I don't know. But uh, yeah, uh, interesting sort of relationship between the two, but both kind of good at their own thing. Probably shouldn't be compared as much as they are or yeah. looked at because there are very different players, but right. that's sort of how we, we in sports world do things is this guy got traded for this guy. So thus who got the better of this deal, who won this trade. But obviously there's, there's, there's a lot more to this. It wasn't a straight up trade in the, in the, in the most obvious sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, there was a reason Michael Ray was going up elsewhere and there's, you know, but, Right. I mean, it is interesting because, of course, they did they you know, they kind of had at least their teams had some battles over the next couple of years. And they both Mm -hmm. had uh, sort of parallels in that they both, you know, by 84, 85 are like absolutely huge emerging stars who have overcome obstacles. Uh, I mean, I guess they're they're in their prime by then. So that maybe not emerging, but they're like, you know, guys who were just like really great at that point. And then um I, um, and then Sugar Ray has the uh, has his drug issues and is out of the league very quickly. Bernard King um, has has an ACL tear and uh, misses almost two whole seasons, and then sort of is able to and just kind of shatters what the Knicks are building as a team. Um, uh, um, Richardson's stuff, you know, shatters what the Nets are building as a team. They both are kind of you know they. they had yeah. needed some work, but they still, you know, were teams that had, you know, provided challenges to the uh, Celtics and the uh, the Seventy Sixers, um, you know, in two years in a row in, um, in champions in in the playoffs. So, you know, the, um, it's just interesting because they both, you know, had this great thing and they both fell off for very different reasons. Bernard did make a comeback and you know ha- had some still had some good NBA years for kind of irrelevant Washington Bullets teams, but. Um, you know, but was never quite the same, even though he made a right. remarkable recovery. Uh, Richardson was never played in the NBA again, but he did actually have like sort of an interesting uh, career overseas. Yeah, it was like 15 yeah, years, some ridiculous yeah. number like of overseas years. 2002, like. I mean, he lasted yeah. a significant injury, which is pretty amazing. So um, anyway, but before we get there, I mean, he did not last in Golden State very long. Uh, 33 games, as a matter of fact, in the 83 season. Um he uh, basically at first he refused to report there. He ends up renegotiating his contract and um, it's the last season for Al Adams as a coach. So uh, Richardson has a, a fondness for uh, driving longtime coaches up. <laughs> it does. It's the Darren Williams. of Right. Today. Exactly. Yeah. So um, uh, there, there's an interesting quote in the, it's in the, the Michael Ray documentary as well, where he talks about there, there's an interview of like, Oh, so, you know, now you're with golden state or whatever. And he like, I, I'm sure like PR, like golden state PR, like I know NBA PR wasn't what it is now or whatever, but he's like, yeah, I had some financial troubles. So they helped me out. So yeah, I'm okay now. And I was just like, Oh God, like, like basically, yes, I had like drug debts and they paid me a lot of money up front and now I'm okay to play. And it's just like, Oh boy. Like, like that's essentially what's being constructed here, but right. that's uh, right. yeah. But there you go. So yeah, that's uh, not the most closely guarded uh, PR department for the Golden State Warriors this time. Where uh, post post contract signing, he just basically says, yeah, they gave me a lot of money up front, so that helps. Yeah. So so um, the uh, basically it got it, it deteriorated to the point where they had a private detective follow him after games. He stopped showing up to practice and just had a lot of um, erratic behavior. So. Um, numbers wise, I mean, definitely there was a drop in shooting. It didn't necessarily like a drop in free throw percentage too. actually his through the percentage is sort of oddly 
uh, you know, for a guard, it was mostly like in the mid sixes, uh, mid, you know, mid 60%. Wasn't very um, yeah. I mean, his career high was, it was 76%, um, I guess 78%, um, his, his final season. So it got a little better here and there, but, um, you know, I mean, other than he just plays fewer games <laughs> and fewer minutes because, you know, he's, uh, he's, you know, in and out of, um, rehab and dealing with things, um, you know, it wasn't like you know, because sort of the documentary portrays him as like his like his just play like completely was like a disaster. And mm-hmm. the numbers don't really show that. But I, I'm sure there were like games where, you know, if you have a cocaine habit, it's going to take your toll and you're going to have bad performances. And his PER definitely like dipped, you know, for a couple. I mean, it was below average in um, 83 splitting between Golden State and New Jersey. It's sort of back up to average the next year. And then he has a really good season after that. But um, so. It is like, you know, it, 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 he doesn't seem like a disaster when you look at the numbers specifically, but obviously there's either, you know, <laughs> there, there's other things going on too. And mm-hmm. it, you know, it may have just been he had good performances mixed in with bad. And, you know, it was sort of erratic performances. Certainly, yeah. So he's traded to New Jersey for Sleepy Floyd and Mickey Johnson. Um, Larry Brown is their coach, and he actually had roots with Larry Brown growing up in Denver, so they had a previous relationship. Uh, Tim Bassett, a former player, was sort of hired to watch him, uh, and he, um, you know, basically it sort of like falls. Uh, he is Larry Brown actually drove him to a clinic um, in New Jersey, and Larry heard him tell you know, whoever was there but basically he was free basing a couple times a week which he which robinson didn't consider that richardson excuse me didn't consider yeah. that much which yeah uh, just a few times a week. <laughs> yeah. so um but he ends up performing fairly well um you know i get I, I guess because he has a stint in rehab he ends up performing i guess okay um they make it to the playoffs, but Larry Brown basically leaves for Kansas with six games left in the season. They, they, they finished 49 and 33. Like I, you just can't imagine like an NBA coach leaving, you know, understanding that Kansas is like a premier college program. And, um, the nets are like, you know, a backwater of the NBA at the time. And the NBA is no, nowhere near what it would become. That's still like a, just a, just such a bizarre thing to have happen. He even, by the standards of Larry Brown. <laughs> right. And, and, and really quickly here, I just wanted to break down uh, Larry Brown's, I, I called it Larry being Larry just to kind of, and, and this isn't counting his college stints, which aren't as crazy, but yeah, he, ha- he has three, obviously different college stints, including currently uh, at coaching at uh, Southern Methodist university. But uh, here's Larry being Larry, just a, a quick breakdown of how many years and, and what team he was with. Uh, so we had two years with Carolina in the ABA, uh, five years with uh, Denver in the ABA and NBA, uh, two years with the Nets, four years with San Antonio, two years with the Los Angeles Clippers, four years with Indiana, six years with Philadelphia, two years with Detroit, one year with the Knicks, and three years with the Charlotte Bobcats. So, Larry Brown, Larry Brown. <laughs> everybody. He, that's uh, uh, yeah. Leaving six games with left in the season is pretty. Uh, that's not good. <laughs> you can't do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, he he was, and he ended up, you know, playing coaching for for what seven other NBA teams yeah, after that. He, so uh, it was he won a national title with uh, Kansas, I believe. Yeah, he did. Yeah, and yeah, so. Good for him. You know, he made it work. But that, that, that is just funny, like, you know, in retrospect. Um, 
Brown's always just looking for his net. I mean, that 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 guy. I mean, you, even even I remember it, when he was coaching Philadelphia. Even when the the Pistons hired him, it was like, well, here's Larry Brown. Like, who's he going to coach next? Or like, he's already thinking about his next job. Yeah, or whatever. when he was with the, he was with the Pistons and he wanted to go to the the Knicks, which it just seemed right. like absurd, of course. But um, anyway, uh, Larry Brown's another podcast. I think that's a. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so they end up playing the Knicks in the uh, in the playoffs that year. They lose uh, two games to nothing. And um, Bernard King uh, plays awesome in the uh, series, uh, and Richardson shoots eight for twenty-one. I I think they kind of like like I guess they they sort of frame Larry Brown as a bit of like a stabilizing influence for him because actually I don't think he officially gone goes goes to rehab yet. He doesn't actually go in to like right after the series is done because he kind of goes after the deep end afterward. He's like seen as at a crack house with his car in front of it. Um, he goes to you know. Between May and, um, and September um, 83, he goes to rehab three times, uh, stays for about a month each time, and proclaims himself cured, but then quickly disappears. Um, and then, you know, kind of into the... You really... Oh, oh, sorry, not to interrupt, but you really see sort of a, a pattern here of, of whenever he's abandoned or when, when people close to him leave, that's when it just goes crazy. Like you have obviously, you know, the, his coach leaves, you, you know, from college and he, he's, it's a big deal to him. I'm obviously not, not as much of a drug fueled problem, but then you have, you know, his play, his, his teammates get traded, his favorite teammates get traded and then he goes crazy. You know, the Larry Brown goes away and then he goes, it seems to be a pattern of, of, of abandonment and it could be related to obviously he mentioned, you know, to, to to his coach in Montana or whatever that, you know, I had no father or whatever, you know, and he's always sort of, it seems like he's always reaching in the people close to him, whenever they go away, it's like, that's now it's, it's on. And now he's, the problem goes from, you know, a five to a 10. Yeah. It's right. Exactly. Um, so, um, you know, in sort of going into the 84 season, like there's this, you know, like he pretends to be kidnapped, even though he's like only in a hotel, a block away from the garden. And they said something about like his, he like was under an alias. Like I forget what it was, but it was something that was like ridiculously close to his real name. Do, do you yeah, remember I don't remember what it was. Yeah. No, I don't yeah. remember. No, I, I heard it, but yeah, I, I can't recall the name. But yeah, it was something very like like Richard Michaelson yeah, or something or like Michael that. Michael Richard, like, something like that. Yeah, they're <laughs> like, well, that, that okay. Yeah. Like that's it's just like one of those things where Ron Mexico, you're bombed out on drugs. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's that's the name you need to give. Nobody suspected yeah. Ron Mexico. He was. Um, he was actually cut by the Nets, but then they was sort of reinstated because it sort of violated the drug policy, which was enacted this time, which was a basically three strikes and you're out type thing. Um, uh, and um, he did finally rehab did stuck stick. He returned to play in December of 83, apologized to everyone on the team and sort of like, um, you know, kind of made it his mission to, um, to, you know, um, restore his trust in his teammates and his coach, who was, um, who at that point was Stan Allback. Uh, Screaming Stan, I believe, was his uh, nickname, which is, uh, uh, I guess, a good coach nickname. And yeah, I'm, I'm in with that. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and then so he does perform better in uh, in the '84 season. In 48 games, he uh, you know is kind of back to close to kind of where he was uh, through most of the rest of his career, you know, um, has really, um, does have a really strong season in, um, well, I, 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 first there's the, uh, the, the postseason, which is definitely one of the highlights of his career where, um, 
the Nets upset the defending champ 76ers in the first round in, in five games. This is the first season where there's 16 teams in the uh, in the playoffs um, and, and there's four rounds guaranteed no matter where you are, because for a while, the first, you know, the number ones you would get a, would get a buy and there was a play in right. game in the short series as we talked about. So this is at least like basically the first year of the modern playoff structure. The only right, as we know, them. Yeah, yeah, the only difference is it went from five to seven games. But um, so it's, it's five games at this point. They upset the uh, 76ers who had a bit of a down year, but were still 52 and 30. They, they had a lot of injuries, but they were pretty healthy. Like at that point, I, I think, you know, like it was probably a little bit of just like, you know, they coasted a bit through the season and thought they could turn on at the right, at that point. And also, you know, they, they were cut. They kind of got old at the wrong time a little bit too. And, uh, you know, the Nets had, I mean, they had Buck Williams, they had Daryl Dawkins, they had Otis Birdsong, Albert King, uh, Kelvin Ramsey, um, you know, Mike Gaminsky. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I, you know, I, I de- you know, not like a great cl- cast of characters, but, you know, they had a, a, a decent enough uh, supporting cast of, you know, okay, you know, role players and all just kind of seemed to click at that point. Richardson just is really strong in that um in that series i'm trying to look at at it right here just a second uh let me pull it up but yeah i know for a fact that he he, he led the team in uh, a scoring and assist and he was second only to buck williams in, in rebounds but i don't know the exact numbers that was yeah. 25 i thought it was, it was uh, 20 or, over 25 points per or, game or, yeah we actually 20 20.6 points uh oh, there you go. five rebounds uh 8.6 assists and um yeah, so they actually won the first two games of the series uh, in Philly. Then they dropped the next two, and then they won the game five, uh, 101 to uh, 98. And I know he had a uh, you know, he had 24 points, six rebounds, six assists in that um, in that closing game. Played 47 minutes. Buck Williams played 46 minutes and had 17 and 16. So um, you know it, that, that's a pretty impressive. Um, upset of you know i mean they still had irving and moses malone andrew tony yeah. Bruce cheeks you know bobby jones i mean um they still had basically the core of yeah, their essentially the same team that won you know the title of the year yeah prior, so. and had been you know a strong playoff team for a long time obviously they added um malone in 83 but but still i mean um yeah i mean they definitely should have seemed like they should have won that um series but you know for whatever reason just um didn't happen and um and yeah, I mean, they, um, it, it, there's an SI article about, you know, this is actually before the series was done, but it was two, two, the Nets were up two one and, um, you know, the teammates were less enthusiastic at first, but, um, you know, there was a quote from Albex that he was like, he, it was like he'd conned us. He had to win our respect again, not once, but two and three times and, uh, said that he required, reacquired his self-respect and sense of dignity. Richardson said, I can understand what the players were thinking, thinking, but I'm just grateful for the opportunity to play again. I knew what I could do if given a chance. Now I'm just doing it. Um, yeah. And he had, um, you know, he just really played well. He also, you know, um, Maurice Treeks tried to defend him, but he was four inches shorter and he had tendonitis in his right knee. So he just had like sort of a difficult time in uh, being able to defend him. So. Um, so moving on to the uh, next season, they are 42 and 40. They fall to the Pistons in the uh, 3-0 in the first round. But Richardson gets his last All-Star appearance. He's the comeback player of the year. And this is also the season of the 
classic uh, Christmas Day game. Uh, most famous, I guess, for Bernard King scoring 60, obviously, but the Nets actually win the game, and Michael Ray leads a comeback win with having um, 36 points. So kind of like, you know, yeah. we talked about the King, Ray, you know, Richardson trade, obviously, um, already kind of talked about their paths, but this is kind of like the water, maybe the watershed moment for them both kind of at this stage of this career before, like, right on the main stage or whatever, yeah, on, on Christmas stage. Because King so. is injured in March of 85 and Richardson suspended in February of 86, so it doesn't last yeah. too much longer, you know. It's really, uh, and I do, I, I do. Definitely recommend people kind of check it out. This season that he had, what was incredible, I mean, just really good. It's it's it almost is better than any of the seasons he had in his prime or whatever, which is is remarkable given. I mean, yeah, he's 29 right. at this point, but he's led a hard 29. I mean, that's in and out of rehab, obviously doing drugs, you know, constantly. It's just insane how good he was in this year. And just, I mean, shot efficiently, scored decent, uh, 8.2 assists per game. He led the league in steals. It's just, it's just, it's crazy how good he is this year. Yeah, I mean, he really, uh, um, you know, sh- you know, the the shooting was good. I mean, he really was able to um, just kind of put it all together um, and played 38 minutes a game. You know, I mean, he was definitely, you know, helping carry that team. That they did struggle a little bit more the next season. Um, not exactly sure why, but um, you know, uh, but still, they. Um, you know, I mean, they they had a decent team, not not a great one or even really a good one, but you know, certainly for the Nets, who had you know as a franchise struggled since coming back to the NBA, it was it was refreshing for him to uh, be able to do that. Then uh, the next year um, starts off pretty well. You know, he's 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 had a pretty good run of being clean um, up. You know, from you know for about a year and a half or so, I guess. And then um, there is a. Um, uh, basically, it's all there's a Christmas party on uh, December 27th um, of 85, where everything's kind of going well. And he's out with Daryl Dawkins and uh, Bobby Cadditch, who was a teammate <laughs> That of seems like a bad start. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Christmas, Daryl Dawkins, that's not going to yeah. go well. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he basically he left with a, with a girl and didn't come back. He failed the show at the next morning shoot around and a game that night. Um, then even his wife didn't, didn't know his whereabouts. Um, and then finally he called his agent and said that for the first time since October of 83, he needed help. So really, so, so two years, um, that he had, you know, uh, apparently been clean and, um, and then he finally had a third drug test in, I believe March of 86. And he, uh, also um, was caught breaking into his ex-wife's house, I guess, uh, was arrested uh, right at the same time. So um, uh, and then at that point, he was banned for life from the NBA by David Stern, who said that uh, he, he said that was what the hardest thing that he ever had to do as a commissioner. And um, uh, and that was the end of his career in the NBA. But, you know, there was there was some good news afterward. He never did make it back to the NBA. There was apparently some negotiations in 88 about possibly returning to the 76ers, but he wanted a two-year deal, and they offered him only one year, so he decided to stay in, in Europe. He kind of bounced around between the CBA, the United States Basketball League, and then ended up playing European ball for until 2002. You know, he was 46 years old and, um, and, and stayed healthy during that time and, you know, was able to – 
uh, make some money. Um, he said that he held no ill will toward um, David Stern. Basically said, yeah, he didn't ban me. I banned myself. He said he helped him get jo- job opportunities. He was for a while after his playing career was done. He worked as an ambassador for the um, Denver Nuggets. He also coached for the uh, Albany Patroons of the um, of the uh, CBA uh, and uh and also, um, uh, he had like he had a bunch of different. There was a. Uh, I'm gonna look it up real quick. The um, different uh, coaching uh, stops that he has had because. Oh, I, I think I have them right now. I was actually okay. up there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Oklahoma Cavalry and the Continental Basketball Association, the uh, the Lawton Fort Sill Cavalry, which yes. is apparently another CBA team as and well. And also the, the I guess it moved to the PBL, the Premier Basketball League. Oh, which yes. is a, okay. a Canada and Puerto. I guess the United States, Canada, and Puerto Rico. So it's sort of the CBA's uh, replacement, I guess. And then he got in a fight. I remember right oh, now. There yeah. was like, got ejected and started. There a was fight. a Grantland piece on uh, that, yeah. that talked. They talked about that and just yeah. Some I guess there was some shady shenanigans involving a referee and maybe one of the games was fixed and some you know <laughs> who's betting on P- right PBL games like come yeah. on what's wrong with, now you're a degenerate like that yeah. like. You're betting on like, and then the the London Lightning of right. NBL Canada. So, uh, where he has been, I, I guess he left in 2014 looking for an NBA job, and apparently nothing has come up um, as of yet. But but there've been a number of profiles to sort of look back at what he's doing. He seems to have. I guess he was living in France for a while, and then and then eventually moved to Oklahoma, but, you know, has, has a family apparently has been clean for, you know, at least since the, the early nineties and, um, you know, doesn't seem to dwell too much on the past seems to have enjoyed, um, playing and coaching, you know, all at different posts around the world, you know, some, um, obviously some obscure ones, but seems to be reasonably at, at peace with everything that happened. So, you know, so good for him. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in, in a lot of the interviews you read, too, it seems like the banning from the NBA, you know, while, while tragic and, and obviously Stern said it was one of the hardest things he had to do. And and I'm sure Michael at the time was just devastated or whatever. It seemed to have a, a calming effect on the rest of his life because he seems like since then he has been pretty OK. And and as he yeah. says, he has no ill will towards David Stern. You know, he, he thinks them in a lot of ways. And, and, and really, it's interesting how sort of maybe it was a good idea to take him away from from, you know, the, the travel or the big cities or that sort of stuff where he could kind of go. And, 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 and he said, I mean, even. Um, you know, there's an interview as well with the MSG network and they talk about, you know, going overseas and he says, well, there's more drugs. I mean, it's easier for me to get drugs overseas. He says, I just don't want to anymore, <laughs> which is, which is interesting because the, the interviewer goes, well, no, it's like New York. There's more drugs. And he's like, no, it was harder to find it in New York than it was in the city or in, in Europe. But he's like, I, once I got to Europe, I just didn't want to anymore. So it, it's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, he, yeah, I mentioned that, you know, being an ocean away from his problems did seem to help him. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, I kind of think, I mean, the lifetime ban is really a two year ban, which right. also does seem you know i you know we we i mean um robert talked about kind of the lecture that his dad gave him about you know like the um the war on drugs and how you know prohibition doesn't really solve anything and and i, I kind of see that a little bit in the nba where like i mean in in a sense it maybe it helped him because it, he was able to sort of stay away from it but although i guess like teams at some point would have kept would have stopped giving him chances so you know it, maybe the same thing kind of would have happened on its own to a degree right um it's hard you know who, who knows what would happen alternately and it's not like there have necessarily been a whole lot of you know 
bands. I mean, the, I, you know, the, really, you know, Roy Tarpley and, John, and there may have been a few John Lucas, but there may have been a couple of others. But there weren't like, you know, for a, for what the problem of cocaine was perceived to be, it wasn't like there were a whole lot of guys who seemed to have a real hard time getting off it eventually, you know. Right. So I I, I kind of go back and forth on whether like that was like the right way 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 to do way to do it to do it like from an image standpoint you know it was good for that you know um because it it took away the image of the problem and I guess it, it took away a lot of the substance of the, of the problem to an extent but it's sort of like you know whether it was really the best policy to deal with it I I don't I know it, it it you know it, it's hard hard to say I mean I guess there doesn't seem to be a cocaine problem in the NBA or a you know a huge um you know, recreational drug problem in the NBA because, you know, you, you don't see a whole lot of guys who exhibit the signs. You don't hear like stuff written or, or talk about, you know, really there being issues in the league anymore. So that's obviously a good thing. Um, so, you know, like I said, it, it's sort of a mixed bag, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and it's funny, we, we've done, you know, a lot of podcasts talking about, you know, the 70s and the 80s or whatever. And and, and it's just, it's amazing to me that, you know, there was an era where it's just like a lot of times dudes might just not show up. Like if one of your players just might not show up to the game, yeah. which is like, well, we don't know where he's well, at. Well, like, like that's, I mean, it's not a, it's not like a one or two, like that happened a lot of times where they were just like, yeah, who knows? Like, whatever. Yeah. Like that, that shows you how just how the, the professional, how much of a different. Yeah. Right. Or just like how much how different it is sort of today and how, you know, maybe it, it obvious that it's not a quote problem, even if they are possibly de- delving in some recreational drugs or whatever. And, and this is a bigger discussion for a bigger day. But, yeah, I, I, I think the the overall big issue is probably a way. But I mean, there's obviously still stuff. But at, at yeah, I bigger, mean, bigger we're going to use drugs if, you know, if they if they're if they can figure out a way to do it, if they like drugs. But and, but yeah, I, it, it's not like an epidemic. Was it ever like really like an epidemic? I mean, there's like an estimate. I think it was from a players association um, guy from like 81 um, where like he said, like 75 percent of the league was using cocaine. Like like I can buy that maybe like 75 percent of the players actually like had used it at it like, you know, had done cocaine but it's hard for me to believe that the league could have functioned with right with 75 being actual like drug users i mean there's no way guys could have you know i mean so i i mean i don't know um but it's there there are some interesting thoughts there i guess absolutely That'll be our other podcast about drugs. Yes, yes. Our, our cocaine podcast. <laughs> How should America punish yes, drugs? There you go. Or should they? That'll be we'll, our next we'll podcast. Definitely, after, we'll, after the 70s we, jerseys we, yeah. or 70s coaches stuff, then we're going to get a little heady here we'll, and talk about, we will you know, solve. We will solve America's <laughs> – The war on drugs. We will drugs, solve yes. America's drug problem. Uh, right. That's our – I can't yes. wait. Um, so I know you have a few other of the uh, the some, some stats and tidbits for us on uh, Michael Ray's yes. career. So again, he's he's another interesting one who kind of is without many sort of comparisons. Where where a guy who keeps coming up is obviously a John Stockton, or whatever. But when you look at the recipe or, or sort of what what his whole his game was very assist based, but it was also very points based and it was very steals based, which is interesting. You don't get a lot of guys like that. So I kind of want to look at a few other um, you know overall numbers and and see sort of other people that that rank even close to him. And interestingly enough, there's really not many other people. I mean, w- when you look at his career numbers, I basically looked at people that average uh, seven assists per game and 
uh, assists per game. And he was a little bit above uh, both those. I think he was 2.7 and 7 point whatever. But uh, he's the only player ever to average that uh, over uh, 7 and, and 2.5. So I decided to lower it to uh, 6 assists per game to see if that would maybe open up a, a bunch more people. Uh, it opened up one guy, Jerry West, is the only other guy to have 6 assists per game and 2.5 steals per game. So, again, interesting, kind of rare company for him to be in. Uh, if we make it 6 assists per game and then only 2 steals per game, we get 11 other guys. But, again, this is a, a not a huge list of dudes, and, and, and it's pretty interesting the guys that, that are on this list. Uh, you have, obviously, a Stockton who, who comes up. Uh, Jerry West, obviously, would be there as well. Uh, Chris Paul is a guy who I immediately would come to mind when you think of assists and steals. Uh, Maurice Cheeks, Allen Iverson, Mookie Blaylock, uh, Fat Lever, uh, Johnny Moore, Slick Watts, uh, Ricky Rubio, and then, of course, Michael Ray Richardson. So definitely rare company for that sort of skill set that we don't really see. Um, yeah. And especially for his size, too. When you look at the size of those other guys and then his size, it, it, it's unique. I, I, yeah, Certainly. And, and, and West might be on that 2.5 um, steals per game. Um well, I you know I guess you lowered it to six, so I was thinking um, because Wes, of course, he, he only his last season was uh, still right. were recorded, so um, it, I mean, I'm sure he would be at a, probably he would have done had more steals earlier in his career. So, um, but uh, but the assists were tracked, so that wouldn't necessarily affect that. But um, anyway, go ahead. No, absolutely, and the steals part is a big part. That's why we sort of cut off a lot, a lot of eras with, without counting steals. Sure. But and yeah, again, as we mentioned at the top of the show with Robert and a few other people, that steals don't necessarily mean you're good at defense. Steals might mean you're good at getting steals. Right. Some guys will do whatever they can to just get a steal and not necessarily worry about stopping the ball or stopping the de- you know. But uh, what I wanted to look at, so then I looked at defensive win shares to see sort of where he ranks, uh, you know, in his era. So what I did is I looked at all the 80s, and obviously he only has the first part of the 80s, not the entire thing, but uh, he ranks 30th all, uh, among all players, all players in the 80s in defensive win shares. So I thought was pretty impressive, yeah. considering there's, you know, four years of the 80s where he doesn't play, and a few of them – effectively not even you know of this universe because he's he's you know he's in and out of rehab he's, he's playing games here and there missing games but 30th among all of them in, in raw defensive win shares that's that's nothing to slouch at so that that tells me at least to some extent that he's not just a total slouch on yeah. defense that he actually had some defensive acumen and not just a guy who sold out for he, steals he so. was he was 38th in that list in minutes um which is yeah. interesting um so he's still outperforming, you know, where you would just kind of think of, of him ranking based on minutes. But uh, yeah, that's kind of a lot of minutes for, you know, missing, uh, you know, for, for missing half the decade, basically. Yeah, certainly. And then uh, last thing I looked at, too, was a value over replacement player, which I mentioned that basketball reference recently added. And they have a good little glossary there if you're kind of curious on what goes into uh, value over replacement player, what it all means and all that stuff. But essentially what we're going to use for this one is uh, he was 19th in the 80s in value over replacement player, which is good. I mean, that's that's that is significant among I mean, that you're talking about. You know, based off this metric, you know, he's in the top 20 of players who played in the 80s. And that's good. I mean, that that's that that is significant, especially given, you know, you said the minutes he, he ranks pretty well in that. And yeah, it's, it's an interesting case where as a guy who we sort of think of as as a wasted talent, but had a really good career. I mean, overall, I mean, yeah, it's it's it sucks that, you know, they're, they're, he missed uh, you know better part of his, his prime and we didn't really get a post prime with him, but still a pretty good career for a guy that, you know, was was in and out of rehab and really a, a guy that we consider a waste of potential. Yeah. I mean, imagine, um, you know, I mean, imagine Dwayne Wade, um, only had his first, you know, for, you know, like, uh, didn't have his, my, his LeBron years. I mean, essentially like had a right. career ending injury or something like that. I mean, that's, I think, um, the early part of Wade's career is a bit, is a bit stronger, but, um, but that's probably a similar comparison. 
if you're thinking about you know Michael Ray's career and you know Wade only having seven or eight of you know his his career, that's about where you would kind of you know think yeah. of, of, of where Wade you know. So that's probably a, a fairly good comparison. Do, do you happen to know off top if um, King is ahead of uh, Richardson yeah, in value of replacement? Yeah, let me let me fire that up real quick. Uh, whether overall, yeah, let me find out because obviously what we did is we did a little sla- uh, snapshot of the early '80s, and and Richardson was above him. But let me just find out about for... the whole decade. Just, just was curious. Uh, like I said, yeah, no, 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 I got a it. Great, I got it. Uh, yeah, the head to head because I mean they play different positions, they have different roles, but I mean obviously they were traded for each other, so I. Yeah, no, and the value replacement player will try to try to kind of bring that all into one number. But uh, yeah, so uh, Bernard is 19.9. So I think that is, I don't have the raw number from Michael ahead of me, but I'm almost positive that is way less than than uh, Michael Richardson. But uh, value replacement player does not like um, Bernard King is whatsoever. That, from what does I can that tell. have to do with the position that he plays? Is that... Uh, positive. Yeah, it could be as well. I mean, it, it's comparable to the position you play uh, relative to to your competition in the league, relative to minutes played, relative to a bunch of other stuff. So, yeah, it could be a situation where compared to replacement forwards in the league at that time. And that, that might speak to the point we made earlier in the show about the point guards of that era or whatever, the guards of the era where it wasn't a very great guard era, but it was, you know, there was a lot of really good forwards. So, yeah, you can see a replacement forward in the 80s might have been easier to find than a replacement point guard, if that makes sense, or a guy of, you know, Michael's skill set. So that, that's where you kind of get that. Let me, uh, let me fire it up here real quick of his, uh, yeah, 25.5 is, um, I'll make sure I have all the 80s here. Uh, yeah, 25 is his total uh, for Michael Ray Richardson. So yeah, uh, definitely a little bit higher than Bernard King in that, but a win shares tells a completely different story. Win shares is Bernard King way above uh, Michael Ray Richardson. Yeah. So it, it, interesting what the, like I said, I don't, I don't know exactly what all that means, but um, it is interesting to just kind of see some of the different comparisons and just to see yeah. the way, I mean, cause there's so many ways to evaluate players, obviously. So, and we don't, we don't have like days and days of footage of Bernard King and um, Michael Ray at our, at our fingertips. You know, there's, we obviously, have clips here and there and a few games here and there but uh unfortunately we don't have access to nearly the amount that we would, that <laughs> we would like of... yes yes if someone wants if somebody the NBA wants to give us uh, access to that database we would uh, we would only do it used for good not for evil right exactly like we're, we're planning our, our christmas episode coming up and we're like oh shucks there's not that many christmas like like we would just let us have every game ever <laughs> yeah right. yeah I, I mean it's not so much every, to ask every that game just... that you have i mean you, you know i no, I want to. Okay, well, I want I mean, fan cam footage of like. Right. Do you want a pony for I Christmas too? <laughs> I do, do you have one? <laughs> I mean, I can see if I have a, if I have a pony guy. She's the one. I want one. Yeah. So. <laughs> she's going to listen to this podcast and then demand you give her a pony. Uh, so. That's insane. Is she an avid listener or no? <laughs> no, she's not quite. Uh, she's not quite at the age of ponies yet. So, or I, I don't know. Ponies are not a huge interest. So, la loopsies, you know, you're, you, you know, all over it. But uh, ponies, you're not. Uh, <laughs> what was it? What was la it? loopsies. Oh, it's a toy. It's. Do I want to know? I mean, I don't it's, it, there's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's a ni- perfectly nice toy. How do you spell this? I'm looking this it, up right now. L a l a l o o p s y. Oh, loopsies. Yeah, okay, it's kind of like. Um, Oh, it. I don't know what you'd compare it to. I mean, it. it oh, I see. Them. Yeah, okay. I mean, they're just they're they're little girls' toys. They're Cabbage Patch Kids of their day, basically. Yeah, they're that's okay, probably yeah, they're, they're scary enough to look like Cabbage Patch Kids. Yeah, they're also they're very not. They're very scary looking. I don't know if I like. <laughs> well, them. okay. I hope I won't be getting any for uh, you for. Christmas. Okay. Well, yeah. Please don't. Right. Yeah. So if that was your Santa gift for me in our game that right. we're playing, yeah. That 
we're doing, right? Exactly. The, the game that we just entirely made up right now. So <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the two members of the podcast are going to have a secret Santa for each other. So <laughs> anyway, uh, I think it's yeah, good. I don't care I, what we'll, we'll, you know, it's not too late. There's still a few shopping days left. So, <laughs> all right. Well, um, anything else, Rich? Uh, that's all I got. All right. Well, um, uh, cool. Everyone, of course, uh, please uh, check us out at uh, thepodiumgame.com. We are part of the Hardwood Paroxysm uh, Basketball Network. You can find all of the great Hardwood Paroxysm podcasts on iTunes uh, and the HP Network. And uh, we would definitely appreciate if you uh, left us a review and a rating, uh, which will uh, allow more people to uh, have the opportunity to uh, check us out and all the other great uh, podcasts on the feed. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Over and Back NBA and the uh, same place on uh, Facebook and it'd be great if you uh, if you've got any you know feedback for us whether if you want to hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or um, leaving a uh, comment on the uh, the post at the podium game those are all good ways to let us know what you think of what we're doing if you have any ideas for players you'd like us to talk about games eras uh, what have you um, that's a good way to uh, do it so certainly. Uh, so thanks everyone for uh, checking us out again. Uh, lucky number thir- episode number thirteen. Lucky number thirteen for us, and we're uh, great to glad that the uh, podium game keeps letting us do it. So uh, <laughs> until next, I just don't think they know. I think they just yeah, have no idea that we're yeah, doing we, this we, like, oh we god, sneak like them the- in. yeah. <laughs> so uh, we'll be back uh, soon with an episode talking about uh, Christmas games. So until then, we'll see you later. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.